that didn't make it. I'm Hilary B. Bisnitz. Listeners, I am so excited today to welcome on our second Kiwi in show history, Andy Buchanan. Andy, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Uh, you know, we've been, we've known each other for a number of years at this point, mm-hmm. and uh, after I had Rem on last year, you came highly, highly recommended as uh, you know, I was like, I, I think Andy's got a book coming out. I want to, like, I want to talk to Andy. <laughs> uh, so it's it's just such a joy to have you on the show. Uh, before we get into the reading uh, of Invented Wings, is there anything that you need to tell us about it? Um, it's a draft of a novel that, as per the theme I chunked, um, mm-hmm. it's a YA steampunk, possibly middle grade steampunk, um, and I wrote it originally for NaNoWriMo many years ago. Fantastic. All right, well, ready when you are. Thank you. Bernie's home was nearby, a large wooden villa with a deep porch and dormer windows protruding from the roof. Any property in Kelvin was highly desirable, particularly given the city's rapidly expanding population, and though the garden was not as neat as those of the other houses in the street, and the paintwork was worn and chipped in places, the tragic death of a wife and mother could excuse a lot, or so Mm. Bernie reasoned. At the gate, Bernie offered brief thanks, and he nodded, excused himself, and was gone. She opened the front door quietly, hoping, against all reason, to sneak upstairs without having to speak to anyone, but barely was she through the door before Betty was fussing around her, exclaiming what did she do to her dress, and Bernie was suddenly very quiet and then began to cry, weeping in silence until Betty undid her dress there at the kitchen table and helped her into a newly laundered smock with blue flowers and began to gently brush out Bernie's blonde curls until at last she told her what had happened. Mm-hmm. Betty shook her head. This was the second explosion in the month. Someone needed to start cracking down on these people. She couldn't understand why anyone would do anything about that, not when there were more than enough perfectly legitimate ways of changing things if you didn't like them. After all, Wellington was the only place in the world with universal suffrage and a truly free press. Hmm. Then Betty told Bernie not to worry about the dress and she should go and lie down. Not with a book you don't want to strain your head. And suddenly Bernie remembered. Uncle Malthus, I forgot. You should be here by now. I must. She began to lace up her boots. Betty stopped her. He's quite capable of finding his own way here. But he'll wonder where I am. You can explain everything when he gets here. Anyway, if you go now, you'll probably just end up missing each other. But no. Mm -hmm. Bernie knew when she was beaten and she dragged herself upstairs, her body feeling surprisingly heavy. 
She thought of pinning up her hair, but felt, for some reason she couldn't define, that she couldn't bear to have anything constricting her; even her loose linen frock, one of her most casual, seemed uncomfortable, almost a burden. She lay down on her bed and read anyway by the glow of the oil lamp. _The Ruby Necklace_ was one of those trashy novels Betty disapproved of, but her father bought for her sometimes with his newspaper, perhaps knowing little about them, more likely not caring. She tried to make herself interested in the desperate searching of the heroine for the young man she had farewelled on a treacherous journey, but though she would normally have absorbed the exciting twists of the plot in one sitting, she found herself restless, distracted. Hmm. In an hour she was up, worried that her uncle had still not arrived, ready to head down and search the streets. But her father now emerged, looking tired and distracted, forbidding it with Betty's backing. You know what Malthus is like, Betty said, the scientist with his swollen eyes and thinning hair nodding in agreement. Always off on some adventure, totally unreliable. He will probably turn up next week with no idea what year it is even. Bernie insisted that such a statement was unfair. For all his untethered existence, he had not let her down once. His plans for his visit had been meticulously laid out. He had told her the ship he would take passage on to Melbourne, which had arrived four days ago, confirmed by the listings at the back of the paper, and then the scheduled airship to Wellington. Father and Betty gave each other knowing looks, as if to say that one day she would learn. So she told them, without raising her voice, but with a noticeable tremor, that they'd be sorry if something happened to him, and then walked upstairs to her bedroom where she read by the glow of the oil lamp. Bernie didn't understand why everyone seemed to feel the way they did about Uncle Malthus. He was so kind and funny, always looking out for her even from far away. And he hadn't had it easy either. His wife, after less than two years of marriage, had left in the middle of the night, taking their baby son with her. Bernie became almost white with fury when she thought about this, her just getting up and leaving him all alone. And thus, with these thoughts, it was a restless night as she tossed and turned below the blankets before being woken by a loud thud against the window. Bernie jumped, still unsettled by the explosion, and then opened the small attic window to look outside. But when she raised the dull glow of the lamp she had left burning, she could see something green on the roof. Mr Butterworth, she breathed, and anxiously dragged her chair to the window. Standing on that, and with the help of a clothes hanger, from which she carelessly discarded a smock on the floor, she managed to drag the near-lifeless parrot, its feathers askew and its neck at a frightening angle, and dropped it onto the pillow. She had no idea how to revive a parrot, but she did what she could, massaging the area where she assumed his heart would be, smoothing his feathers down, breathing air onto his face. How devastated Uncle Malthus would be! She couldn't remember a time before he had Mr Butterworth perched on his arm or shoulder or flying circles above him. Knowing that with Mr Butterworth here, Uncle Malthus must have reached Wellington at least, she noticed a ring on the bird's leg, inside it a slip of paper. It was nothing more than an address, an address in Tarikaka, which raised significantly more questions than it answered. 
Though she had seen a small settlement perched on Wellington's northernmost hills many times, Bernie had never been there and would never have had reason to, even though it was much heralded here and overseas. The collection of cottages with well-trimmed lawns, whitewashed weatherboard houses and the central complex of a community hall and clinic, all paid for by the railway, was a far cry from the slums of Paris or New York. Hmm. She left the parrot in a drawer and after a few desperate hours of sleep crept out of the house. Hmm. That was really lovely. Thank you. Mm-hmm. It had... There was something just so cozy about it that I really, just really loved. Uh, and I, something else I can't quite put my finger on. But, uh, yeah, just like, I don't know. I, I think there's something I find really comforting about, like, steampunk settings in general. It's a tough one, because they're ones that often have a lot of sense of hope and the potential for creating mm -hmm. a different world, but they're also set in a, a setting or a world built on a setting where there was a lot more going on in terms of um, workers' rights, in terms of colonialism. And mm -hmm. I think that was one of the way, the things I struggled with with this novel as a whole it was going to be alternate history mm -hmm. but i feel when you're doing that you're always making a comment about actual history mm -hmm. and while i don't think it's impossible to do this right i realized i didn't really have the capacity to do what i wanted with it and it oh, yep. maybe wasn't responsible to try and do it anyway mm -hmm. I mean, the thing is, like, sometimes you just have to write it to figure that out. I think so, and I think with any trunked piece, and I have quite a few, <laughs> I've definitely learned things from it. There are definitely things that have come through um, or that I've reused in later pieces. Um, I think there are other, I think it's also part of working out your journey as a writer, as a brand. I know mm -hmm. when I'd written it, I wasn't sure if I wanted to be a YA author either. And there's everything that comes with that, particularly when you're writing queer YA, which mm -hmm. it's not an, it's an, not a, I will never write YA, but that was definitely something on my mind as well. Yeah, for sure. I, uh, I was just struck with this, thought that, you know, with, uh, with the war that's happening in U Ukraine with, with basically Russia trying to do colonialism again and with all mm. of the, uh, certainly I know in the States there's been a lot of, uh, you know, renewed interest in labor rights and, you know, we have George the Cat leaving leading a huge labor movement now. I love jorts. <laughs> I love jorts so much. I could not have predicted at the start of the year that he would become, you know, this just like absolute bastion for <laughs> workers' rights in the country and around the world. Um, but like with all of that, it, I, I'm 
just like was struck with the thought like is steampunk gonna come back this year like is that something that's gonna happen because i'd be so here for it if it did interesting yes and obviously with the pandemic going on we've been quite interested in historical parallels Mm -hmm. um which might be maybe a bit later than the steampunk era but there's certainly an element of looking to historical patterns that's been going on yeah and i mean also i just like if i got to be back on that particular brand of my bullshit i would be extremely (laughs) here for it uh i i sometimes in disparaging myself disparage steampunk which i think is unfair i think that steampunk as a genre like every genre has problems and has weird things Mm. but that uh you know, one of the things that I'm trying to do as a writer is, like, stop saying mean things about myself and, right, yeah. like, making sure to also not say, like, not put down myself and steampunk together in that is, like, really important as something that I'm, like, working on learning better. I mean, I think it comes with a lot of baggage and it's got a difficult base to work from and I think you've got to be really cognizant of that mm-hmm. but I also think some people have done amazing things with it um Nisi Shaw's Everfair mm-hmm. is this incredible and I mean it goes into colonialism it goes into how how little and how much is needed to tip the balance of history mm-hmm. um there's a lot of well-intentioned white people <laughs> and a lot of commentary of that um i think because i um i grew up a lot reading e nesbitt did you have her books mm-hmm. the, um, the I... Jordan in it and she was coming very much from a fabian background mm-hmm. um and a lot of the characters in everfair are fabians which was a early 20th century left wing ish but complicated Mm -hmm. um movement and i think she captures the inconsistencies and the well-intentioned failures of that so well Mm -hmm. i'm so glad that you brought up inesbit i i don't think i've ever gotten a chance to like bring her up before on the show but like five children and it was such a huge part of my childhood absolutely same i've just been reading um eleanor fitzsimmons's biography of her oh awesome eleanor was so kind to send me um i wrote a whining tweet i didn't even name her or anything she was (laughs) saying i'd seen it in a bookshop and it was 70 dollars and there was no way and she went and posted me a review copy it was very lovely of her That's like, I didn't lovely. know, she just randomly found the tweet, and it was, oh. <laughs> um, and so I've been learning a lot more about the context for that, but yeah, Five Children and It and the sequels to it, um, I really recognise those as, um, like, I used to feel that I got into SFF when I started reading Wyndham and Asimov when I was 12, 13, but now mm-hmm. I've looked back at it and it was totally writers like Enesbit that were my yeah. introduction. Yeah, I was, uh, like, Enesbit was huge for me and uh, I think also, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Joan Aiken's work. Yes, 
Yeah. Like, I I 100%, I will say this over and over till the day I die, the reason I'm into alternate history is her books. There's, there's some imagery. Like, I don't feel I know hers as well. Like, I'm not sure I could tell you the titles. Like, there's one about a girl left in charge of in the charge of the family cat while mm-hmm. the parent ship sails inside an iceberg and her hair talks to her and she cut it it talks louder um i don't know if you know the one i'm on about but that that's sort of really vivid imagery that just almost haunts you mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah i can't bring the title to mind but uh listeners i will hopefully have it in the show notes sounds great um yeah i I I think going back to to something that you said earlier uh it's really like there there are two ideas in my head that are sort of like wrapped around each other right now that uh one of them was what you said about uh like realizing like oh I don't have the you know I don't have the thing to write this right now like I can't do this right um and in my mind, that is, like, so deeply interti- intertwined with, um, kind of intertwined with, like, my thought of, like, oh, will steampunk come back? But also just, like, the way that, um, the way that I think a lot of people in the genre space are really working to be more cognizant of the... Uh, of the messages they're sending and like the the underlying assumptions that they're building their worlds off of and things like that yeah yeah absolutely and i think it's um it's something there's much more discussion of and maybe if i were writing it now i would feel more confident and have access to more resources or mm-hmm. maybe it's not the story that a white person should write ever i i don't know and i'm not I never say never with trunk things, but I'm not picking it up again now, so I'm not mm-hmm. really going through that process. But I, th- I definitely think that if you want to get things right, if you want to do that world building, there's a lot more out there compared to even a decade ago. Hmm. Yeah, for sure. And like, you know, I, uh, we're we're now well over a decade like almost 15 years out from sort of like the height of steampunk as i remember it in like you know the 2007 to 2009 ish space um where it's like you know there is a lot that has changed in that time and i and i think um a lot more interest we were, um, I was kind of talking about this same idea with Lillian Boyd on last month's episode of, like, uh, each new generation coming out and, like, figuring out what they want to take from the last generation of writers and, like, mm. play with it in their own way, and that, like, the current generation of writers that we're both a part of is, like, this really... You know, I'm sure that hopefully in a hundred years people will look back and say like, "Oh, that I I can see what they were trying for, but they weren't terribly <laughs> progressive." But 
you know, com- compared to even 10 years ago, like the amount of progress that I see and like the amount of, um, you know, we've still got well-intentioned white people. I, we are two of those on yeah. this show, I would say. <laughs> yeah. But like, you know, we're, we're more people are not just approaching it from the lens of being well-intentioned, but are actually approaching it from the lens of, like, uh, like going out and doing the work. And, like... Yes. Yeah. So, uh, I wonder if you can uh, talk a little bit about sort of what the ideas were that drove you. Like, one of the things you said this was a NaNoWriMo book... One of the things that's really interesting for me is, like, I've won two NaNoWriMo's. I have not yet finished either of the novels that I've written from those. Yes. Um, and, like, I, I just wonder if you can talk a little bit to, like, your approach to, like, Oh, what is actually going to be like most of the NaNoWriMo's I've failed. I've, I have failed, quote unquote. There's no failure in NaNoWriMo because you're still writing words. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but um, the ones where I haven't reached the 50,000 mark have almost always been because I went in with an idea that I didn't have 50,000 words in my heart of. Right. Yeah, sure. Um, some of the times I've done it recently, I've actually worked on more than one project. Like, mm-hmm. I've done two novellas and swapped between them. Um, I'm a very rough first drafter. I'm definitely one of those people that writes to find out the story. So, mm. while it doesn't work out every time, I think it fits reasonably well for me in that... I don't really mind how rough it is because Mm -hmm. I'm figuring things out and whether I did it as part of a time challenge or not, I know there's going to be at least one full rewrite in there. Mm -hmm. That said, I think the first time I did it and the first time most people did it, I think the main purpose is to get over the mental hurdle of a full novel and to know that you can write so many words and... At that point, you're doing tricks like you're doing ninjas show up. Oh, look, mm-hmm. there's a zombie, you know, and that sort of thing. Or you're find replacing all your contractions, like all your don'ts and to do not. <laughs> doing everything to get over the word count. And I definitely don't do that anymore because I'm not writing to get 50,000 words or to know I can write a novel. I know I can write a novel. I'm writing to get a very rough first draft that I can mm-hmm. then massage into something better. Yeah. I think um, it's really... It's it's interesting to hear you say, like, that when you write to find out what happens, you know that, like, you know that it's going to be rough, because I think that's one of the hurdles I really had to get over, and, like... Yeah. My my process has evolved so much over the past almost 20 years at this point of, like, uh, if for, especially for long-form stuff, learning that I do need at least a little bit of an outline 
so that I can be rough? Yes, yes. Um, I am doing more planning, but I think I'm always going to be someone that needs to do a full redraft. And I think being okay mm -hmm. with those stuff, like there's someone else in my critique group who writes very slowly, but writes very perfectly. And mm -hmm. half the time she only really needs to do a copy edit and proofread. And it's working for her. You know, she's published in most of the major SFF magazines. So go for it. But there's, mm -hmm. there's no way it's happening here. And... I think, for whatever reason, writers, there's things you can learn and there's things you can change, but to some extent, some of us just have an innate way of working that's... Yeah. And <laughs> I mean, there. I think one of the, like, process things is learning learning what works best for you and, like, you know, some, some people will just figure that out immediately or, like, like you said, sort of have this, like, innate sense of, like, oh, this is the way that I work. But, like, you know, for 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 me as a neurodiverse person, it took a long time to figure out, like, the right tricks to get me to be able to turn things out. And, like, and even, you know, like, I've been at this 18-ish years now, 17 years, something like and, like, even in that time, like, the way that I work has had to evolve and change to, you know, the particular circumstances, to the, the length I'm writing at. So it's, like, it's always, it's always an evolving process, and it's, you know, I think really important to, like, me being sort of a, a plotter, plot-heavy plantser right. at this point being able to have you a pantser on and like have this you know breadth of different processes that work for both of us absolutely and like you know for i i hope for listeners who are you know maybe more at the beginning of their careers like knowing or, you know, pre-career, whatever, however they want to de define themselves, like, knowing, like, it's okay to take, like, it's important to take the time to figure out how you work best. Yeah. And I think one thing I was saying recently is most bits of writing advice are ideas to try, mm -hmm. particularly if you're at the, um, you know, if you're at the start of your career or if you're finding things aren't working for you process-wise, um, with some exceptions, but a lot of the things people present as hard and fast rules are actually ideas that it's really worth giving a go if you, if you can, but you can also discard them entirely if they don't work for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, like, the... I, you know, I... I uh... I've talked about on the show before, like, I have a degree in creative writing uh, from uh, a wonderful tiny college in western North Carolina up in the mountains called uh, Warren Wilson, and, like, I found that, I found a lot of the things I learned in that program to be really valuable, and I also, like, had to there were a lot of things I didn't learn in that program mm -hmm. you know I was I, I finished that program when I was 24 like 
And, you know, that was a while ago. Uh, And, like, since that time, you know, I'm... I haven't reached the lofty goals that I had set for myself, you know, in college or when I graduated of, like, oh, you know, be published novelist, whatever, like that. But, like, I've, you know, kept working and refining and, like, figuring out what what things I was taught in that program are, like, the most useful for me and how to... And, like, knowing when to break the rules, they said, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I think knowing when to break the rules is really important. I didn't do a creative writing degree, but I did do a few undergrad classes. And I think for me, the most useful thing was getting used to a critique environment mm-hmm. and knowing, I mean, even, even though it was imperfect in some ways, I think getting thrown into that was the most useful thing more than any specifics. Um, yeah. Which they were well taught, but maybe not quite for the sort of fiction I wanted to write or for mm-hmm. exactly where I saw myself. Yeah, for sure. And, it, and, and I think that that's one of the biggest... Like, for me, one of the biggest things was just that of, like, learning learning how to critique better and learning uh, just, like, being in an environment where I'm around a bunch of un- other writers. Mm-hmm. And, like, even, you know, I had, like, a small cohort of people who were also doing, you know, being rebels and doing genre stuff with me. <laughs> but, like even the people who weren't writing speculative stuff, like, they had, you know, critiquing their stuff helped me learn about my own process and, like, how I like to put things together and, like, also just, like, you know, like, sometimes you read a thing and you're like, oh, I want to figure out how they did that. And, like, you know, it's completely different than how you write, but it's something that you want to, to emulate or something like that. So, can we talk a little bit about your upcoming novel? Because uh, you have a book coming out, Sanctuary. I do. It's out on the 12th of April from Robot Dinosaur Press. And Sanctuary is um, a, a novel about a queer and neurodivergent found family who live in a haunted house alongside the ghosts and what happens when their home is disrupted and threatened oh we love to see it thank you <laughs> mhm and uh you know i we've we've mentioned it recently when we had uh Rekka back on the show but robot dinosaur press big friend uh you know a lot of friends of the show within the uh that collective cohort uh, yeah. obviously you know We've got you, we've got Rekka, we've got Merck. Mm. It's something we started quite recently as a cooperative press, and it's been really helpful. So it's it's functioning somewhere between a small press and indie publishing. Mm-hmm. Um, we pull what we have resource-wise and particularly knowledge-wise, 
we've got I think 12 or 13 books out or upcoming so um it's sort of kicked off with a bag which is really exciting um, yeah as you said people like McVen Wolfmore um RJ Theodore um Juliet Wade there's, mm-hmm. there's a bunch of people I can't name them all off the top of my head but um it's really cool people to work alongside um we're all doing queer SFF for some definitions of queer and mm-hmm. some definitions of SFF, but we're, you know, it's quite a range and really exciting to be part of. Yeah. And uh, I will also say that if you would like some more smooching books, then <laughs> uh, your uh, sibling publication, uh, sibling press, Latte Literary, uh, Absolutely. which... Uh, I believe is headed up by a friend of the show, Sarah Locke. It is. So the, there's an overarching group called Chipped, Cla- Chipped Cup Collective. Mm-hmm. And within that, we've got Robot Dinosaur Press. Um, and we've also got Latte Literary. There's a potential for um, others at some point, though they're not in operation right now. Um, mm-hmm. And as even though they operate a little bit differently to each other, it's a similar basic principle, and obviously we'll, we work together across those as well. Yeah, and and uh, like you said, there's just so much skill sharing going on there, and like, uh, you know, it kind of comes back to what we were talking about earlier of like, you know, strengthening labor movements of like. You know, this this is like a collective of skilled queer people coming together, pooling their resources, pooling their mm-hmm. knowledge, and like building something that, you know, I personally am a huge fan of, not just from the works that are coming out there, uh, which I'm very much a fan of, but also just like the the knowledge that this is a group of people who, many of whom I know, uh, obviously, but also just, like, a group of very cool people out here doing something that is, you know, it's chasing voices that might not otherwise be heard. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think there's huge potential for a different I mean obviously we could only do so much under capitalism but mm-hmm. I still think there's quite a space and quite a potential for doing things differently and thinking about different modes of organization and publishing and this is something we're trying out yeah I you know I'm looking forward to an illustrious future <laughs> thank you um Obviously, this is coming out, uh, by the time this episode comes out, Sanctuary will be, will have been out for about a week. Right, uh, yeah. So hopefully listeners are going out, listening to this episode, and then immediately picking up a copy of Sanctuary <laughs> or, you know, any other of the lovely books from the Chip Cup Collective. Uh, but, you know, I'm really looking forward to seeing... Uh, you know, the seeing the names from this publisher coming up in, you know, as award season 
progresses and at, in future award seasons. I have no doubt that uh, we'll be seeing representation there. That would be very cool. Let's, let's see how it goes, but mm-hmm. I'm excited about what's in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, speaking of the future, this weird noise just came out of nowhere and this blue police box landed in the the (laughs) podcasting studio behind me and I wonder if we can take a step into this time machine and travel back uh, (laughs) and uh, talk to, you know, new writer Andy about some of the things that you wish they had known that you know now. Ooh. um, I mean, I feel like there were a few stages for new writer Andy Mm -hmm. um I think one thing I'd like them to know is is handwriting is terrible with your disabilities and to get a keyboard as soon as you possibly can Mm -hmm. and to not believe anyone who tells you that real writers write with a fountain pen and (laughs) all that sort of nonsense so that's my sort of baby advice Mm-hmm. Um, I think learning about fan fiction earlier as an established mm-hmm. thing, um, both as a baby writer and as a baby queer would have been very beneficial. I mean, I was definitely writing derivative works. Mm-hmm. Um, I think basically my first story was, um, when I was about five, was a competition entry for, um, a Mog the Cat story, mm-hmm. which is very lovely. Um, but I didn't have any conception of a fan fiction community or that it was had any kind of norms or ways of thinking about it. Mm-hmm. So that's probably teenage. <laughs> yeah. Andy. Um, I think for Andy a bit later, when I was starting to get into the business of writing i'd Mm -hmm. get more specific i'd say to um pitch particularly for short stories to pitch for the um higher higher level publications the better paying or the more prestigious even Mm -hmm. even when i didn't think and i was probably right in thinking i wouldn't get in there just to get used to it and work my way down and Mm -hmm not have to think I needed to build my way up or pay my dues in that respect. Yeah. Um, I I think that one especially is something that, like, the business of genre writing is so opaque in some ways, and there's mm-hmm. not, like, there is, there. I think there is much more so now because, like, you know, there's this podcast to be completely self-serving. There are so many, uh, there there are so many more resources now than there were a decade, two decades, three decades ago in terms of like opening things up for new writers. But there's still like just the terminology is so uh, confusing in some ways. Of like you know we talk about markets in terms of like pro versus semi-pro and and like I think that that really leads a lot of people to believe like oh I need to I can't submit to a pro market yet I'm not a professional 
and what a semi-pro is taken to mean in terms of pay rate is different to what awards deem a semi-pro market and mm -hmm. it, it is very very opaque um i think there are some better guidelines for where to start out there now but you still you still need a bit of an idea of what you're looking yeah. for and like you know like i uh back in the day i mean rallin is still around but like oh. <laughs> <laughs> we've maybe just aged ourselves yeah yeah well it it was a very useful resource it was very comprehensive mm -hmm. um but not compared to something like search functionality <laughs> yeah no, not not compared to something like when I was in college uh, and Duotrope was still free, like that was incredible to me to learn. Yeah, like yeah. that that was the single, I think the single best thing I learned in college was one of my professors who was you know an adjunct professor and a working writer said, start using Duotrope, track your submissions, like. You know, obviously track your submissions, but like Duotrope is a great way to do it. And uh, I I haven't used Duotrope in about a decade at this point. I think it is still very good. It is uh, obviously a paid resource at this point, but I uh, do use it. I know there have been some concerns about it, and the way they brought in the fee alienated a lot of people. But mm -hmm. in terms of the core resource, I still find it very useful the other option is the submissions grinder mm -hmm. which while i maybe didn't think through the title as much <laughs> as well as i could have done um is it it's a similar thing it's got a different it's different interface but it's a similar idea in that it's a highly searchable um database of short fiction markets it and uh, um What's the word? It brings together user data to give you more information on those. Mm -hmm. And you can use it to track your work as well. So yeah. if any newbie short fiction writers are listening, I'd recommend looking at one or the other of those. Yeah. Uh, the the name is definitely one of those things where, like, you always need to have a queer person in the room when you're making <laughs> decisions around these things. Indeed, uh, indeed. And, um, you know, you recommended everyone kind of looks at you. And yeah. that. <laughs> but I, I will say, uh, as both a, uh, a financial sustainer of, of the submission grinder and as somebody who has... I, use, I was using the beta version for a while before they rolled out some of the, like, graph features and stuff uh, and have done... Not so much in recent years, but did a fair amount of like bug reporting stuff that uh, David Stefan, who runs the grinder and who is also the uh, editor behind Diabolical Plots, is a great person to work with. Right, yeah. Uh, and, you know, really, uh, really responsive when there are things that are broken or not right, um, and very good at like. Uh, his, I've I've had him had a couple of stub markets in the past where like I was going through and fixing up my old submissions records and found like oh I submitted this thing to a market that doesn't exist anymore. Uh, so yeah, really, really great uh, 
really great resource out there. I wanted to um, touch back to your first point for, uh, as you said, like, baby, baby, Andy. Mm. Um, because I think it's a, a theme that has come back over and over again in this, as we've been talking, is, uh, like, dispelling these myths of, like, uh, you know, the the one true Scotsman, real mm. writers only, you know, use a fountain pen and write in longhand, uh. in, you know, beautiful longhand in a gazebo, weighted on hand and foot by, you know, whatever. Like, the... I, I think it's so vital, um, you know, especially, you know, if you have, like, a, a younger writer in your life, or even a younger person in general, like, letting them know, like, oh, there are accommodations out there. There are accommodations, and there's always also a heap that you can experiment with yourself. Um, obviously, if you're talking young people, they may not have as much access um, mm-hmm. to change things for themselves, but there's there's usually quite a lot of ways of working that you can experiment with. Some people can only write in noisy cafes, um, which has probably been difficult recently, but mm-hmm. in general, if it, you know, if that's what works for you and someone else needs dead silence, then that's what works for you. Um, I think there are very... There's a few things in the business that you have to be very famous to get mm-hmm. away with and obviously advice like don't write abusive submission letters is pretty much universal but mm-hmm. in terms of i think there are in terms of outcomes there are definitely going to be outcomes that are far more sellable than others there's going to be word counts around books that mm-hmm. if you're aiming for traditional pr- publishing you're going to have a hard time if they're under or over that for example but in terms of how you get there and your process that's mostly up to you Mm-hmm. and don't let anybody tell you otherwise yes <laughs> exactly um and you know like there are so many especially now like obviously it, it takes an amount of means or technical skill to get there, but, like, in terms of even, like, you know, I rely on a keyboard for my hobby and for my day job, Mm -hmm. like, as a writer and as a computers person, like, I am on my keyboard constantly, and, you know, I figured out, like, four years ago, like, a regular keyboard doesn't work super well for me. I need to, no. like, have a split keyboard. And, yeah. like, you know, that <laughs> that's, like, a, a lot of people wouldn't think of that as, uh, like, an assistive device necessarily, but, like, that's yeah. absolutely an accommodation. Yeah, I mean, if you have certainly here, this may be a function of how our accident compensation works but if you have an office job basically on your first day you'll get an occupational therapist or a nurse or someone to come around and set up your keyboard for you mm-hmm. and if we work from home there's no one doing that but 
maybe there should be maybe there is a door-to-door -door service i haven't discovered i don't know but at least there are online resources you can mm -hmm. look up to find out things about that and remember the qwerty keyboard was designed to slow people down mm -hmm. um, it was not designed to be an ultimate optimal keyboard layout it was designed so type it because if typists using a typewriter typed too fast all the um all the type keys, bars would jam yeah up. they they all gummed up and got stuck to each other so which doesn't mean everyone could just switch to a different layout but just keep in mind things like that that it's not the default isn't necessarily the optimal mm-hmm uh and if this is something uh, that you are interested in talking about at length, listeners, at me. <laughs> at me on Twitter. I will talk your ear off. <laughs> and I mean, there's also, there's also voice to text. There are a lot of other options. I know mm -hmm. one writer who does a lot of her writing going for walks and speaking into her phone, which apparently gets a bit awkward when she's doing a sex scene or something like that. <laughs> but in general it works very well for her so w with mm -hmm. that caveat um i think there are a lot of options yeah yeah uh, uh during the last uh NaNoWriMo uh i remember that my spouse found that particularly awkward because she was narrating <laughs> Uh, she she was uh, dictating her book and uh, just using like you can just do voice to text in the Chrome browser like ah, ah, and know you know it's it's not the most advanced but it works and yeah yeah uh, that you know she was writing a romance book and sometimes you just have to like go a bit red in the face but you know. Close the door, write that scene out. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Andy, it's been so much fun talking to you. Uh, before we get going, are there any things that you've been reading, listening to, watching, uh, in any way media consuming that you've been really excited about that you'd love to tell our listeners about? Ooh, I am reading Fitty Hariaka's Kurangituku at the moment, mm -hmm. um, which is this incredible, I, I don't even know how to describe it, it's normally a novel, but it's, um, it's, it's resurrecting a story of a bird woman and the man who was chasing her and how she went to the underworld and all things like this, but it's, um, if you get the paperback, which unfortunately might be hard overseas, mm -hmm. it's one of these ones where it's two stories and it's flipped. So either side is a cover to a different story. Oh, very cool. And they meet in the middle. And I'm doing a hard, um, and they sort of intersperse for a while. So the pages are like the left page is upside down and the right. I, I'm doing a very poor job selling this because. <laughs> It's just doing things that I don't quite know how to describe, but mm -hmm. it's such an original take that I'm really interested, and I hope it gets more traction overseas. I know the ebook is available. I'm not quite sure about the paperback. That's um, very cool. Yes, yeah, I I enjoyed um, Shelley Parker Chan's "She Who Became the Sun." 
mm-hmm. which is a queer reimagining of 14th century China. It's very immersive. It's more, I mean, it's more military than I generally read, but it was sufficiently immersive that I just went with it and mm-hmm. really liked it. And also, there's a bit of an older book, a collection of short stories called Black Eyes Matter by Gina Cole, Mm -hmm. um, who's a writer who sort of sits on the edge of the literary and the speculative. And these sort of, there's there's sort of themes, as you might expect, of sort of ice and being frozen and buried, running Mm -hmm. through quite a few of them. Um, But they're often stories that just leave you a bit uneasy, like you don't quite know what I mean either you don't quite know what happened or you don't quite know why the story was formed in that way and mm. they're quite brilliant and I, I really enjoyed um I, I was recommended like five years ago and I feel a fool that it took me this long but <laughs> I, I I really liked it I mean as my dad who lives in a house with like I don't know, 7,000 books or something, uh-huh, would say. Uh-huh. So many books, so little time. Uh-huh. Yeah, yes, that is my life as well. Um, those all sound uh, very, very good. I've I've heard a lot of good things about She Who Became the Sun, and uh, I'm very excited to check these other books out, especially... Um, I do a fair bit of reading in ebook, but I also just, like... I love a book as an artifact, and, yeah, and when you can like play really with makes that a difference. Yeah, yeah. I, I read a mixture as well, but I feel some were really designed for one form or another. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, like you know, the the accessibility that ebooks brings about is really great. Absolutely. Um, I. I I will not hear people knocking either paper books or ebooks in my mentions. Oh no, no, absolutely not. I think I think it's an example that if you have a choice, there's a, there's sometimes a reason to choose one or the other. But if you don't, it's very good that there's, you know, there's that option, and you can still have the experience of reading it. I know. Mm-hmm. Um, Recently, I've been making a lot of use of my library's ebook service as well, and that's been really important to me. So, mm-hmm. absolutely, for all the other issues with this era, we're very lucky to have different yeah. formats. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Not sure it quite makes up for everything, but you know, it's. No. Uh... <laughs> but at least we have books. Indeed, indeed. Well, Andy, it's been so much fun having you on the show. Where can our listeners find you elsewhere? Thank you. Um, I'm mostly on Twitter, where I'm Andy C. Buchanan. That's Andy with an I. Um, I'm almost the same. My website is almost the same, um, andycbuchanan.org. Fantastic. Well, Andy, thank you once again so, so much for coming on the show. It's been so much fun and you know i look forward to having you back on again in the future at some point well thank you so much for having me and thank you to everyone for listening absolutely tales from the trunk is mixed and produced in beautiful oakland california our theme music is paper wings by lillian boyd 
You can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash trunkcast. All patrons of the show now get a sticker and logo button, along with show outtakes and other content that can't be found anywhere else. You can find the show on Twitter at trunkcast, and I tweet at hbbisniex. If you like the show, consider taking a moment to rate and review us on your preferred podcast platform. And remember, don't self-reject. Don't self-reject.